there is no one singular black cultural experience. There's so many different ways and to suggest that like black folks in San Diego feel and talk and act the same way as black folks in Connecticut, I mean, it's a misnomer, but I think that's something that we're beginning to see um, being embraced. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, what's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. I'd like to welcome you to the premiere episode of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Um, a little bit about me. I make my artistic living as an episodic director here in LA. Uh, over the last three years, I've directed about 30 episodes of TV from comedies like Silicon Valley, Insecure, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and Blackish, to dramas like A Million Little Things, Greenleaf, Station 19, and Grey's Anatomy. One of the things that I've always loved most about directing is the creative collaboration between cast and crew. And I really love those conversations that I get to have in Video Village, uh, on set, in the location van, while we're scouting at lunch. And my goal with this podcast is to take those conversations and bring them here to you and to spend more time on topics that we don't really get to kind of marinate in when there's always another shot to be made uh, for whatever film or whatever TV show or whatever web series is being produced. My first guest is a very good friend of mine and I think it's uh, ideal that he's here to kick it off. Um, Theo Travers is a screenwriter, which is important because as much as the industry might not spotlight writers, without them, there is no Hollywood. It all comes from the script. Storytelling has an impact on society, on culture, and in the wake of the protests around the world in response to the murder of George Floyd and countless other black men and women driven by racism and white supremacy, I wanted to chat about the narratives that exist in America and what position Hollywood plays in creating them. Um, this episode was recorded over Zoom and Theo and I are catching up after a few months of, of, of not chopping it up. So I hope you'll enjoy just being a fly on the wall and kicking it with us. Before I start, a few credits from my man. Uh, Theo began his uh, professional writing career on Showtime's House of Lies. He then went to uh, Fox's Sleepy Hollow, then NBC's The Brave, followed by Stars or Stars Is Is, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Um, power and uh, currently he's back with Showtime uh, on Billions where right now he's literally in the writer's room for season two and he is, um, I don't know, I'm sorry, right now he's literally in the writer's room for season six and serving as an executive producer. 
Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Action. Like some of my funniest memories of us, because we went to the same film school at NYU. Um, and um, a lot of people don't know that uh, Pete Chapman, aside from being a great director, was also once an RA. <laughs> in fact, in fact, we were both RAs. And I remember there one being one night where I was on duty and I had to report back to the main desk because a student had been reported drinking and there was some kind of problem. And uh, Pete was not on duty. <laughs> he saw me, responded to the scene and just scooped by like, later. <laughs> no, hey, man, but... I, I only answer the call when I need to, you know what hey. I mean? <laughs> hey. No, nah, just, just, just kidding on that. You got you to gotta, you gotta answer the call. No, no, no. Look, man, we, uh, I mean, I just think that, like, I point that out to just point out, like, you know, you and I have grown up together as friends and as artists and, um, you know, as people, as Black men living in America. Um, and I feel like that, especially right now, just feels like something that everybody in the country needs to be having a conversation about. Right. I totally agree, brother. Well, look, I mean, before we get in, man, I just want to do a, a check-in. You know, right now, as we record this, it, it is uh, Tuesday, June 2nd. I just had my 43rd birthday, not only in quarantine, but under damn near martial law in right. Los Angeles. And I just want to, you know, do a personal check-in, man, and hear how you're doing and how you're processing everything that's going on right now, um, a week after the murder of George Floyd and all of the other, uh, you know, incidents that are beginning to get some sunlight from Ahmaud Arbery to Brianna to Tatiana, just, you know, everybody around the nation, man. I have to tell you, Ben, to be honest with you, I'm not doing well. Um, you know, and for those of you who know me, like, you know, I tend to generally tend to have a sunny disposition. Um, easygoing, but I mean, it's hard to, in the face of all the stuff that's been brought back up, you know, I think that, you know, some of the reaction to um, the moment that we're in feels unprecedented, um, especially for those who are not paying attention to history because we've been here before many times before. Right. Um, but I just think there's just an overwhelming sense of, um, you know, despair that's sort of built upon so many other things that are not going well right now. You know, we have a, you know, a really sort of economically depressed situation um, since businesses have been shut down across the country since March. Um, you've got people who've been pent up. You've got a deadly virus that's spreading. Um, and I think that the conditions caused by the outbreak really just sort of exposed the frailties and the cracks in our system. Right. Um, in ways you know, that we are seeing now. It's interesting, too, to me, because like what 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 all of these events have laid bare and made clear to me is just how fragile the agreement is on civility, on on life. You know what I mean? On uh, honor, right? You know, like, even if you think about money, like, we've all agreed that money has this value, that that tomorrow, if somebody were to say, no, it doesn't, poof, it's gone. And, like, we've all agreed that, you know, so-called uh, looters are, you know, people are not going to go burn things down. But Trevor Noah had a really good uh, 
breakdown of what's going on. I don't know if you saw it. I haven't seen it yet. He talked about the contract, the social contract, and Mm -hmm. the contract that a lot of Black folks feel has not been honored has, um, you know, resulted in the actions that you're seeing. And you're blaming folks for looting down here, but people's lives have been looted for years. Right. You know know what? And I tend to... I tend to come at this from a different angle because I do hear the comparisons and there's no, there's no question that the, the knee of the oppressor has been on black and brown folks necks since the founding of this country. But like, you know, I def- definitely the kind of person who wants to, um, I mean, I know that immediately we have the symptoms of all of this to deal with and, and, um, but you know, as somebody who's been, you know, a patient, steadfast vessel of the values that I received from my parents and my grandparents, I'm really sort of focused on like the solution, right? Because let's get it. I mean, you know, our criminal justice system it, it, it must keep all of our communities safe, right? And foster prevention and rehabilitation and ensure fair and equal justice. But you know, in too many places and in too many ways, our system has been failing the basic mandate. And, you know, I do think that it is time for us to begin talking about practical policy solutions and, you know, having continuing the shared narrative around criminal justice reform, because there are some things that we can do that can address the problems. Right. Um, I don't know if we're ready to have that conversation as a country yet, because again, you, you know, you speak to the anger. I mean, I think that, um, there are a lot of us that are that are burning with it, but um, yeah. I personally don't. I don't stand with anybody who's fucking running out and robbing shoes and smashing windows because that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Yeah, I get the anger. Well, um, I mean that's a big conversation though too because a yeah. lot of what you see on the news is the people doing that have no connection to the honest protesting related to the policies and the, and the and the byproducts of that with these deaths in the country and i think the the biggest thing you know is <clears throat> man I, I mean i could i could go down a, a real rabbit hole here but i think <laughs> i think the biggest thing is as they call it the original sin every nobody's ever wanted to to label this what it is it's it's called the original sin slavery right. was called the peculiar institution right like and and so there's a war where hundreds of thousands of people die the civil war that is ultimately saying fuck slavery right but well you know what i would argue i would i would i would argue that the original sin is actually, uh, you know, the extermination of Native peoples that lived on this land. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all connected, though, to one thing, which is, you know, this idea of, of elevating one race to a place where actions that are evil and horrible can be explained away. So if you're doing it to someone who's three-fifths of a person, then it's not like doing it to your fellow man. If you're doing it to, you know what I mean? But I, but I think at coming out of the war and never, ever really putting it on paper, like 
So slavery was wrong, y'all lost, you know, and here's how we're moving. They kind of did everything they could after the war to not say you lost and that practice, you know, um, should never happen again, I think has, is why it's never been, it's never been squashed. Well, I mean, if you look throughout human history, there are a lot of things that humans have explained away to justify an innately cruel act, you know? And I don't think that that flaw is unique to just people of European ancestry. I think, you know, it's something that we're all capable of descending into. And, you know, if you want to talk about criminal justice in America, yes, we can talk about how, you know, it was formed by posses who were criminalizing slaves who were running away for their freedom. And it's not as if the tactics that they used suddenly stopped at the end of the Civil War, right? So, okay, so we've been living under this oppressive system, but like, you know, I still say like, yes, that is the cause of the social unrest, the frustration and sheer like um, hypocrisy of a system that says one thing but does another. Like I get all of that, but you know, at the end of the day, it's like, um, it's the conundrum, right? It's, it's like, we're paying attention because of the violence, but the violence is actually pulling focus from the thing that we really need to be talking about. But the other thing, and then, then we'll get in the story. The other thing <laughs> is, Well, this is important because, you know, we're talking story, about telling stories that respond and are relevant to who you are and where we are as a culture, because that's what, you know, that's what storytellers have always been. And so before we can even talk about story, we have to talk about where we are. So I appreciate you giving, a, giving me the space to air my feelings. You know, I think we've all been like shut in and, you know, most of our only social outlet is through, you know, Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> but, but is it not true, you know, that anything that's ever been claimed over the history of the world has been done so, or has been accomplished by violence. I mean, and I'm not saying, I'm not, that's a deeper conversation, but like, you know, the Boston Tea Party was not, uh, was not a, a happy hour. You know so, what I'm saying? So we've, so we've made mistakes. And what have we learned from those mistakes? Well, I mean, I, 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 you've learned that you can be the biggest superpower in the world by having the military might to basically say, if you don't agree with what we're talking about here, we'll fuck your shit up. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Like that—that's—that's that's how you get what you want. And and people have been asking and asking and asking and marching and parading and then trying to get people elected because that you know then we got people elected then you gerrymandered you know then so. I think you're really, I think folks are really left feeling helpless. I don't think that those are the same people who are protesting, just to say that. Yeah, I, well, yeah, but, no, and I think you're right. See, here's the thing. If, if, it were, if it were just the peaceful protesters, which really encompasses about 80 to 90% of the people who come out all across the country, I've been empowered and encouraged by seeing really the sheer diversity of people out, you know, because while this is, um, an extension of the Black Lives Matter movement in terms of the specific response to George Floyd's um, cruel murder. Um, I think that, you know, I've just seen 
many other people coming out to support who are just equally, uh, well, maybe not equally, but certainly um, angry about it, as we all should be. And, you know, I, I think that if it were just a story of them, it would get a blurb. It would be at the bottom of the fold on the newspaper for anybody who doesn't read it that way. And it would be like, you know, burying the, the B block on TV news. But because, you know, um, because there has been such a volatile reaction to the toxicity in our system that, yeah, no, now it is a front page story. And, you know, I, I think that that like I, I, I'm I'm torn because like I said, I, while I understand the anger, I think that it's always a small number of people who fuck it up for the rest of us, regardless of what we're talking about. And I think that's the case here. Like, you know, like, um, you know, like I've, I've watched some of the looting and I realize that's the thing that most people are talking about because um, it's the thing that gets the most attention and grabs the most headlines. Um, and, and as a result of it, I just think that it is causing a lot of us to be talking about that when really we should be talking about, well, how do we make real substantive criminal justice reform? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree. I just wonder what the real, I wonder what the real impactful thing will be moving forward because after 92, after um, Mike Brown and, and, and the, and the, and the protests of, I believe that was 2014. I don't want to be incorrect. Uh, mm-hmm. So pardon me if I'm off on that. Um, but, you know. Well, it just points out how, how many there have been and how impossible it is to even keep track unless you have a database of the number of unarmed, innocent Black men and women who've been slain either by law officers or civilians claiming to be acting on behalf of the law. Right. So let, let's, uh, this is the, probably the most non-graceful transition I'll ever <laughs> Well, you know what? Director, but <laughs> Could I answer a question that I think might help us transition better? Because sure. you said you don't know what's different now than the many instances of social unrest we've seen in the past. And I think that really in the last 10 years, what's really been a, a big difference is, you know, the fact that everybody has an HD video camera in their pockets and most people have access to social media. And I think it's sort of laid bare the thing that, you know, generations of people have been talking about um, for what it is. And I think that the speed at which we share information has also enabled many more groups to organize and work together. Let's talk about, I I hear what you're saying. I almost want to, I want to, I've had an interesting few days just kind of going down the rabbit hole, reading a whole bunch of stuff, being on, you know, Zoom calls with a lot of activists who are working to push things forward and and providing me with information um, that I didn't have to kind of contextualize what's going on. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, let's get into story in a weird way. <laughs> um, when you look at that video of Chauvin killing George Floyd, what's interesting to me is that there's a story there and we have never seen a person knowing they're on camera. So shit eatingly looking back at the camera, 
aware of their being filmed, hand in their pocket, smirk on their face. And there's a whole narrative behind what makes that character exist. And so I wonder what your thoughts are in relationship to these stories that we are told or watch in this country that might create that type of character. I think that it, that uh, you pointed out so eloquently before that, you know, violence is certainly a part of the American DNA. Um, I can't speak to the horrific thing that we saw on display. And while I think in time, we'll learn more about this, that person's history. Um, and, you know, um, 17 or 18 other uh, complaints. Right. I'm not surprised. Wow. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, I think we'll also learn a lot about the, um, in time, sort of the internal problems that the Minneapolis Police Department in general has been having for a number of years, because it's not like this is the first incident similar to this. That's why they brought the new chief in 2017. It's right. systemic, you know. I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm like. I'm like live footnoting. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, look. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Like, I, I'm glad that we're having this conversation because it does feel that just talking about craft, in the absence of what, uh, why we tell stories, um, you know, feels tone deaf. So I, I'm. I, cre- I appreciate you creating space for us to do this. Um, I also think that one of the things that is sort of happening in our country right now, and part of is the underpinnings of the social unrest that we're seeing is that we as a nation are really grappling with that complicated history that you're talking about. Because I think for so many years, there have been a lot of myths of um, what success and happiness means in America. And, um, And I think for the same way that the Virginian Southern plantation owner had to create a false fiction around his life to justify the cruel act of enslaving people and, right. you know, and not paying them um, and abusing them and robbing them of their uh, human rights. Um, I think that we're having this reckoning as a country now where so many of the things about the underpinnings of American capitalism have had these ugly effects that we sort of swept under the carpet and ignore because we were too busy enjoying prosperity. And those two things have really literally clashed when you see um, an angry person smashing into a big corporate store that like, by the way, uh, taxpayers bailed out in the last recession and will again this recession. And what did the company do? But do buyback stocks and claim poverty when the economy goes bad again. So again, yeah, like I'm not justifying the act, but I definitely understand why um, some of these bigger chain places are being targeted. It sucks though that a lot of small businesses and minority owned businesses are also uh, being looted. Right. Let's, let's talk about story in the sense, you know, it's interesting. Okay. Watching all of the conversation on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram has been um, it's it's so interestingly full circle for me because the film that first opened my eyes 
to the ability to put what I was familiar with on screen was do the right thing, right? That was, and it was, and it's such a small thing. And this is where representation I think is super important because for me, it was when bugging out got his Jordan scuffed by the uh, <laughs> so-called gentrifier with the Larry Bird jersey and the bike. Yeah. Um, and I saw Carlo Esposito. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my God, like I know that. And that made me feel like what I had in my mind was, was worthy of being on screen. And when you get to the conclusion of the film, what you hear often is, uh, and Spike talked about this at length, he would always get questions about the destruction of the pizzeria and his part in that having thrown this garbage can through a window, but there was never ever a question about, or rarely, let me say, I hate when people say 99% of the time, there was rarely a response or a question about the murder of Rayo Rahim, played by Bill Nunn. And so what is, what stories need to be told when in 1989, between 1989 and now 2020, that is 31 years, we are still having the same question. What stories need to be told in, in the world? What are the stories that are lacking in, in the just general kind of uh, universe of American, you know, whether it's TV, film, whatever, that might help to um, complicate this issue and elucidate folks about what is actually happening when you see these kind of events? Well, I, I want to circle back to this, but you brought up some things for me talking about um, do the right thing. And obviously um, Spike Lee is a huge uh, role model of mine. Certainly was one of the reasons that brought me to NYU and how we met, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, along with filmmakers like Oliver Stone and uh, Martin Scorsese. But I would say that I had a very, seminal reaction to John Singleton's Boys in the Hood. Um, I just remember it being a cultural moment because at the time, you know, I was living in Chicago and, you know, um, by then I was fully like listening to like NWA and Public Enemy and um, Ice Cube after you left NWA. And, you know, I was just hearing all these, you know, these urban narratives that like reflected where I was living at the time. And, um, but you know, it, this was like before hip hop became mainstream. So it felt like they were speaking directly to an audience, but the audience was small, but like, um, or smaller than it is now, certainly. And I just think that Boys in a Hood presented this narrative in a big Hollywood movie in a way that none of us had quite seen before. And, um, and it, and it portrayed the story of like, you know, what, what we're talking about. Like, you know, you show these four kids who are living in this really oppressed, segregated system. And then you see what happens to them as an adult, you know, like what options do they have? Um, and it was so powerful. And I think, you know, the other thing that was really influential about it for me was that I remember watching it for a second time and letting the credits roll largely because I just wanted to listen to Ice Cube track. And, uh, and I saw John Singleton thank USC's filmic writing program. And while I didn't ultimately end up going there, it was the first time I was even aware that this was a thing that you could study like any other craft. And, and it suddenly made sense to me like, 
oh, you don't just have to be lucky and bump into Steven Spielberg at the mall to, to break into film and TV. Like, um, and, um, you know, and I'm grateful for that. And, you know, I certainly uh, hope to, oh, I have to tell you this story because I don't know if I've ever, if I've really gotten a chance to share this with many people, but when I uh, applied to NYU and USC, by the way, I actually wrote a letter to John Singleton. Um, yeah, I reached out to him. I was like, look, I, you've inspired me. Um, and I managed to get into these two, you know, elite film programs that were more expensive than I could possibly afford. Right. So I asked him actually, what, what was his advice? You know, like I got into these two great programs. What would you recommend? And do you have any advice on where I could find scholarship money? And do you know that he wrote me back? See, that's what's up. He wrote me back and even had his assistant photocopy this article that was in Ebony Magazine that had a bunch of scholarships for African-American students. And I was just so touched. I mean, at the time he might've been, this would have been between higher learning and Rosewood. So the man was busy, certainly busy enough to be like uh, some high school kid from (laughs) Georgia wrote me a letter, but I was always touched by that. And I did get a chance um, before he sadly passed away um, to, to meet him and to thank him for that moment. It was actually in the backyard of on my, I'm showing this to, uh, Theo on the camera, but he is on the DGA 2020 card. Oh, so I proudly carry John Singleton in my wallet every single day. Yes, he was pivotal. And, and I think that he was probably, um, embittered by the fact that he has such this, um, splash arrival at 23 years old. Right. Um, and, you know, we've seen, you know, and, you know, this goes to the question you asked about what kind of stories do we need to tell. I think that it was very difficult for John to tell the kind of stories he wanted to tell at the time that he broke through in Hollywood. Right. And we really have him and so many of the others who have just been banging on that wall. And I think we finally have gotten to a place where we're beginning to see a lot of those stories. I mean, for one, I just think that um, you just have so many different individual unique voices that are putting on display the thing that you and I have known all along, but was never really evident in popular culture is that like, there is no one singular black cultural experience. There's so many different ways and to suggest that like black folks in San Diego, feel and talk and act the same way as white folks in Connecticut, I mean, it's a misnomer, but I think that's something that we're beginning to see um, being embraced. I think in part because much like the moment we're in, we're just at a point where it just can't sustain itself anymore. Um, And I think certainly too, the way we consume media now has changed dramatically. although the vertical integration of the companies is still pretty much the same. They got a monopoly going, but there's certainly now a lot more platforms for original storytelling than we've ever seen before. And I think as a result, far more diverse and more unique options out there. And I think that as streaming expands, the more we will begin to see. Um, Now, the question remains, you know, will will the people who we want to see it, see it. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I had, I, have, I had a conversation earlier today, actually, with someone from HBO about this very thing. 
uh, inspired by a Facebook and Instagram post that I made where mm-hmm. I said, Hollywood needs to stop making period pieces with Black culture because all it's saying is whether on purpose or subconsciously, what's being communicated is this is a thing of the past. And I'm, I think that that's how you can go from 1989 to 2020 and still have the disconnect and, and the surprise that I'm hearing when I talk to a lot of folks uh, that things are really like this when I'm like, it's always been like this. So to me, the stories that are missing are, you know, more of the let's deal with race and culture. But it's, it's a two prong attack where you have you have the the fruit veils of the world where it's from an, a, like a, 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 a person. You have the Americanas of the world, which HBO Max is doing, where it's from a book. Um, and then you have original stories from like the things that you and I used to write before we had to figure out how to get paid right like mm-hmm. like original stories that are anchored in those worlds and then on the other side you have um you have genre driven films that i hate i hate to say it like this but genre driven films that cloak those issues in the genre and right. and and you know like the script i've been co-writing uh with with candace uh free 99 is exactly that it's it's a straight up heist film, but the underpinnings of it are historical fiction and it takes place today. So it's not like here, go get your biopic medicine, you know, um, here's, you know, a story that operates on that level. And then you need volume because it can't just be one a year. It's gotta be as you have to know that you have to see that these stories are validated, are validated um, they're delivered with craft, and they're not going anywhere. And I think that's how you begin to have something to offer as a counterpoint to the existing narratives. Because if you if you go to debunk the existing narratives with a fucking movie that says, well, in 1968, we solved it all, didn't we? Then, of course, you're going <laughs> to move further away from the reality of there are institutional um uh, man, I'm just going to say fangs <laughs> that hover over everyone and that cloud everyone's, um, not cloud, but impact everyone's thinking, even when they don't know it. And you have folks who say, like, I don't see race. You know, I was talking to my wife yesterday. I was like, well, I, I hope if I roll up in a wheelchair, you see that shit, right? Like, like, how do you how do you not see race? And how do you do you not see that I'm I'm the tallest person on the team? Maybe I should play center. There's all these things that we we acknowledge, but then when it gets to the most crucial, not most crucial, but to a, a thing that that is very distinguishing in the everyday life of that person, as much as the wheelchair or the seven foot one person, you know, we want to say hands off. <laughs> well, you know, I I want to like tell you a funny story about um, this was back last year. I was uh, on, in the writer's room on Power. And, um, you know, as you do in writer's room, when you're taking a break or whatever, sometimes people will pull up a link and someone in, I think, believe it was a writer's assistant, Charles Hamilton, pulled up a trailer for Green Book, which, as many people know, won the Academy Award, what, last year, two years ago? Yeah, sure. Um, Okay. (laughs) And and just, just so if people weren't clear, 
you know, it should be it should be said that like power, the power writing room is maybe one of the blackest writing rooms in Hollywood. <laughs> if not an actual headcount, certainly in thuggery. <laughs> and there was an open aghast reaction to it, you know, and the way that I think a lot of particularly people in black intelligentsia responded to this being basically uh, driving his Daisy in reverse. And, you know, yes, it does have this romantic Hollywood escapist fantasy about race, but Hollywood has always has made its money on creating fantasy. And while I do think that if that's the only thing you're getting is an unhealthy diet, like only eating fast food. Right. Um, I think that you need everything. And, you know, and, and I, I, I point out something about that film that I think got lost in all the people hating on it because look, I have so much respect for Mahershala Ali and for Octavia Spencer. I think there are a lot of people who did not know about that musician. It was based on a true story. And while it does fall into these tropes, I mean, it was a movie that I, I, I remember I, I brought the screener home with me when I went to visit my mom for Christmas holidays. And it was among the stack of movies in my list of things. And, you know, if you're talking about Joker versus Green Book, I'm probably going to put on Green Book if I'm sitting with my mom, right? Right. And we had two different reactions to the film. I thought it was like, oh, God, it's the same old tropes that we've seen over and over again. You know, the magical Negro making everything happy and acceptable for white people. And my mom saw a beautiful story about a musician that she's never seen a story about Mm -hmm. um, that had an uplifting ending. and. and maybe as somebody who's been through far more struggles than I have in her lifetime, maybe that's what she wants. But I, I think to your, your question, the story is we need to see more, is we need to see more points of views on this subject matter, right? Because that is the, that's the point of view that I think, you know, if you're a white, an older white male <laughs> talking about race, you know, that might be your entry point is about the relationship you had with a black man that changed your point of view about black people. But if you're a black man, that interaction might just be a a blip. Your your story might be a completely different interaction and relationship. I think think volume is a big factor in this conversation, right? Because, you know, it's a matter of if there were more examples from which we could pull, then this conversation would be a little bit different. Right. Like if 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 you were to reverse the 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 dynamics of Hollywood, I used to always say this. Right. Um, When I was trying to raise money for my first feature. And and let's say it was run by people who were only making films about people of color. Right. And the only films that were being greenlit uh, that did not feature people of color so that had maybe an all white cast were things like, dude, where's my car? Then there would be a complaint of, well, why are you only like paying to make these kinds of films, stoner films or, you know, in kind of more silly comedies? Like uh, there's a there's a breadth to the experience that we'd love to share. Um, and I think because we don't have the volume that would reflect the purchasing power and the type of audience support that is given to all films, we're really left to pick apart 
what we are being given because it's kind of like going to the, it's like going to Whole Foods and basically being served a plate of fucking potato chips. <laughs> but you, but you know, and, and, and they can but be, you know, what, you know what I think you're poking at the edges of here. I mean, you're really talking about a conversation about where art meets commerce. And this is sure. a conversation that any artist of any background suffers from. And almost certainly you can meet any filmmaker and they will tell you about this passion project that has taken forever for them to get the fine funding for. Right. Um, and I think if you're talking systemically, why there's been such an absence of these stories, you really do have to look at the marketing components and the financing and all the things that have been structurally, you know, by de facto eliminating original voices of color until now. Sure. Really, I mean, you know, like I'm, I'm not saying that this is the first time we've seen a, a plethora of different original voices, but I mean, just in terms of it not just being, you know, lip service every year, somebody's crowned the king of black people and then they go on and just <laughs> and right. make movies the way that they always have. I think that they, the audience has changed. I think the, the organizing and the financing is changing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, here's the other thing. All right. So before I moved to Los Angeles to be a writer, I worked for five years as a news reporter in the Southeast, most recently Memphis, Tennessee. And, and I remember there being this moment where I was just talking to another black person and they were like, yo, you're going to go see the play. And I was like, the play. <laughs> and of course, what they were talking about, there was a, a company touring company doing a Tyler play, a Tyler Perry Medea play. Right. And, you know, but that was just such a, a, a snapshot of, you know, popular black culture at that moment at that time that like, of course I'm talking about the Tyler Perry play. What else would I be talking about? And I think to myself, like, yeah, you know, when when Medea comes out, you know, he has no problem filling the the audience seats. But when there's a moonlight or something else, I mean, our audiences, you know what I mean? Like, so therein lies the sort of like conundrum of like art versus commerce, because I think that um, every storyteller needs an audience. And yeah. and it's the challenge is finding that audience and um, and also speaking to something that people but want to come and and hear there's plenty of people um with first look deals worth a lot of money based off of projects that did not find a huge audience they were they were critically successful by the terms of particular critics who have a particular taste Mm -hmm. and because of that fact they can have two or three duds before they strike again with a with a classic film. Right. And if if every if you have to you know be Jay Z with every album or Michael Jack Jordan with every shot, I mean it's just not a, a fair opportunity for voices to grow. Um, I know that that's a particular issue. That, I mean that's personal for you because I don't know many filmmakers who came out of NYU's um, undergraduate film and television program um, made features as quickly as you wrote, directed, and produced Premium. Um, and and by quick, that was six years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but yeah. I mean, yeah, but do you count them on your peers? Like how many, how many of the men and women you graduated with have a feature credit? And not many. Um, but, you know, we've seen time and time and again where, um, 
a filmmaker with a, a very small, specific movie, uh, suddenly their, their career catapults. And, right. you know, and a guy as talented and charismatic and hardworking as you, there does a, that, that, it begs the question, like, why did, why did it take you as long as it took you hustling and grinding to finally have your talent recognized? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can answer that. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> but, you know, no, but I, I feel like, and this is, it's top of mind because I'm writing a book about the whole journey from high school to now and, and all the pivots from student filmmaker to indie feature to running a production company to NYU faculty to TV directing. And for me, I was... All I remain driven by the fact that storytelling and stories impact culture. And there is a great divide between the stories that exist and the culture that is there. I remember going to Australia and somebody literally asked me if I had ever stabbed somebody. You know what I mean? Like, and like, like literally, and I'm like, that's fucking crazy. But then you know what? It's actually not. Because if I look at the diet of, of content that you've had, it would only support that question if you're not seeking out uh, additional information, particularly when much of the real information is being withheld from you. And so I had a journey of really trying to, I was often trying to find a way to split the difference of like, these things that I want to say and getting some money to make that. Right. And yeah. I made premium, you know, $600,000, 35 investors saying what I wanted to say. And it didn't find the critical acclaim that propels you to the next thing. I, I would not get an agent or a manager for 10 more years, despite another feature winning Tribeca uh, all access and, you know, every actor that I've ever worked with becoming a huge star. And so it was only because what I think happened over a long, long enough timeline is that there became a point of recognition, whether, um, and however we got there is another conversation, but it was recognized that there was a lack of diversity. And because of that, um, the programs got me in front of people. And then I think people could see like, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. He knows how to manage a set because he ran his own company for seven years and has raised over a million dollars on projects. So like there's a, there's a kind of almost fully formed outlier effect that came with me when I, when I stumbled into these kind of programs where most people were 20 years younger than me or often I shadowed people whom I had done more directing than. And I think that um, that's, the, that's the big challenge, man. Like finding, finding, getting those stories out there, finding a way to have a career, right? right. Um, you know, and then, and keeping the commitment to telling those kinds of stories as you begin to find a career, perhaps in a space where you're not. Anytime a writer comes to me and asks me, you know, someone is trying to break in or trying to, you know, maybe write their first screenplay and they ask me what kind of things should I write? And I'm always lead with um, tell the story that you're dying to tell that you haven't seen but want to see. Um, that's the thing you should be focused on. And of course, 
you know, sometimes that advice falls flat on its face when you take that personal project to the marketplace and have somebody tell you it feels small or not mm-hmm. specific or whatever, you know, something that diminishes it and doesn't allow you to, you know, to catapult. Um, I think I, I witnessed a little bit of pivoting that happened um, during the years that I worked as an assistant before I got staffed as a writer. And I mean, I, it, all, it all begins with, with streaming. Um, I think mm-hmm. ABC uh, was the first network to offer like HD streaming in 2007, right around the same time that Netflix had a few movies in their library, but people were still primarily just getting the disc. Right. right? But um, I moved to LA on November 4th, 2008, uh, a day most of us remember. I early voted in Tennessee and watched the election results pour in sitting on a buddy's couch in Studio City. And, you know, I always mark that, I remember that moment feeling to me like, wow, if this can happen, anything's possible. I could definitely sell a damn script. Um, (laughs) You know, I just think Barack Obama was such a transformative figure. And I had met him years earlier working as a reporter. I'd had an opportunity to interview him one-on-one at this commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott. And, I was, you know, incredibly impressed by his candor. And, you know, we were talking about this subject that you and I are talking about, like, you know, what has happened in the last 50 years and what are the challenges we have in the next 50 years? And I remember coming away from that experience thinking like, wow, this man is so, you know, like just this brother's deep. He's smart, he's quick, he's compassionate. Wouldn't it be amazing if a man like him could be president in the United States? (laughs) But remember, I was living in Alabama at the time. And the reality there is like when things like, you know, can people of the same gender marry came up for a vote in that state, like there was no debate. It was like 98% past marriages between man and woman. Um, so I think that like I had become cynical because I was living in red states um, and was so like, you know, I think, I guess we were hopeful. A lot of us were, you know, maybe some, not everybody, some were naively hopeful. Um, but I, you know, I, I say all that to say that it was a pivotal time also in digital technology, right. um, streaming really changed the game and made that the old guard Nielsen ratings way of, um, determining eyeballs, uh, no longer was relevant and the audience was shifting, you know, um, you know, the, the audience is, the, it's getting younger and browner by the day. So I think that some of the pivoting to the demand for diversity happened in Hollywood, not because of some internal desire to do the right thing, but truly diversity became um, a business directive (laughs) in order to stay relevant. You're going to have to speak to more people and like, oh shit, how come we don't have any people? You know, and then, and then I think that, you know, it's been a reckoning these last decade trying to address years of exclusion. Um, and you know, also trying to address the, the other outside factors that contribute to the reason why um, you know there was such a dearth of diversity at least ten years ago. But um, you know, it's, it's shifting, and I don't know. I'd be curious to you know get your perspective on things you've seen even in the last year or two um, that you know give you encouragement. Is there anything? 
Yeah, I mean, look, I feel like there are so many more platforms and so many uh, new uh, voices that have an opportunity to shine and grow and find their voice on these new platforms. Um, for me, it's been, I'd have to say it's, it, I mean, it's been very positive. Uh, I've been very fortunate to go from, you know, fourth, go through four directing programs and then now be at a place where, you know, I've, almost at like 30 episodes of TV, you know, in like three mm. years. That, that's great. I had, um, to, I had to have the Negro pre-vet as well. I've been through four writing programs myself. Yeah. By the way, I didn't get my first staffing job from any of them, but they were all great experiences for different reasons, largely because of the other writers that I met in the programs, because, you know, your peers, you, you grow up together, you share resources, you commiserate, uh, and and grapple with your disappointments all together. Um, right. But yeah, um, those programs didn't exist in the way that, um, you know, the way that they do now a little more than 10 years ago. Uh, there certainly weren't as many of them. No, there weren't. There weren't. You know, I, I feel like it's a, I'm trying, I'm grappling with, with exactly how to answer that question because I think um, I viewed differently and, may, and perhaps you do as well i know that you've got a show out to market right but like i view differently um what i do when i'm brought to help visualize and 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 realize um another person's vision mm -hmm. right so like i know that when i come to any show drama comedy hour half hour like i'm there to uh have studied what their product is understand the world and the characters and the playground and then bring my kind of like unique perspective to that world and to fit into the 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 dynamic of that blueprint um and with that i will hop from show to show and there will be different realities or different themes or different intents right or different agendas sometimes mm -hmm. um and so i feel like the beautiful part about that is that i've become in my own feeling really good at what I do by repetition and by diversifying uh, the craft. But I guess my, the, 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 the moat in front of me personally uh, is the point where, um, and this is purely just a, a personal thing. Um, the, the moat and the gap is, getting to that place where we can tell those stories I mentioned earlier, which are the ones that are anchored in, in our experience and in our culture, but perhaps um, delivered through a non-period piece and a different type of packaging. Right. Um, and so that, that to me is the, that is the North star to me of the thing that needs to be, uh, needs to be, taken care of, needs to be hurdled, needs to be knocked down. Um, I think I used to say, uh, I might've told you this, like my goal, um, cause I like to have like a metaphor. Like when people, when people talk about like high concept in, 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 in writing, right. It's like, it's uh, alien meets jaws, right. Or it's jaws and out of space. Right. Um, so for me, I used to kind of guide, have a guiding light of, I want to be the Will Smith of directing. To <laughs> 
You know, like I remember going to see Pursuit of Happiness at the Clifton Commons Theater in 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 New Jersey. And it was a matinee on Sunday filled with I overwhelmingly uh, elderly white couples. And at its core, that's a super quote unquote like black story. Right. About fatherhood, about, you know, about survival, about all these different things. And I was like, wow, that's a very interesting I'm witnessing something very specific right now. Um, and I've always wondered, you know, or even like with iRobot, it's like this is shaft in the future. And how can that type of um, promise be created between a director and an audience where you know that, you know, you're going to get this dope story, but it's still going to be black it's still going to have its cultural relevance and it may also have its historical relevance and i and i feel like that's a space that i want to occupy and that's a space that i'm trying to figure out how to how to get because a lot of what that is is not the things that i can pay for myself mm -hmm. i continue well, to you, know, things. you know this is one thing that i would say you know to this because every every writer or filmmaker has a different process and you know and i think that whatever your process is, you should lean into that because that's where you'll find your best work. Um, and I do think that there are a lot of different places from which story comes from. And, you know, we began this conversation talking about um, the anger and um, despair that some people feel right now. And that can really be a really pivotal place to start from um, wanting to tell a story, wanting to tell a very specific story, one that maybe you feel has not been told, right? But like, that's just a starting point. Like to me, you know, a good story, you know, poses a compelling question, you know, by way of a character that I can recognize some part of myself in, and then surprises me with the answer. Right. And when you can accomplish that, you will find that a lot of the walls that you think are up culturally that some people may not understand immediately fall away. Um, when there is that sort of recognition and like recognition of yourself and a character doesn't mean that they have to physically look like you um, because there are a lot of all sorts of movie and TV heroes that I can relate to their struggle and not necessarily, you know, they look like me, right? So, um, you know, that's, I just think that's just something that, you know, that's, that's something that every storyteller wants to pose an interesting, compelling, relevant question but surprise us with the answer, because at the end of the day, if, we're, if I'm going to sit and watch your movie for an hour and a half, two hours, I don't want to already know how the fucking thing ends mm -hmm. 10 minutes into it. I'm just going to be pissed, you know I mean? Like, oh, I held my bladder for this, you right. know? But like, when it's something that's surprising, the thing where you're like, oh man, I got to use a bathroom, but I don't want to leave because I don't want to miss what's happening. Then you got, you, that's a good story. <laughs> so, so take, so that's talking about the future, uh, which is, only achieve through the present. Uh, let's talk about what you're doing right now. Um, you know, you're on you're on Billions. Your episode aired on May 31st. So everybody go back and watch that if you haven't already. Um, yeah, contract was um, was a lot of fun to make. I am uh, yeah. Currently, um, I've returned. Actually, now the room has started for season six on Billions. And while um, production on the show had to shut down like every uh, production did pretty much in March. Um, 
we as writers are still going ahead and beginning to break story and write scripts so that when production can resume in New York City, we'll have some scripts banked and can roll right into production on six um, as soon as we're done with, uh, with season five. But yeah, no, man, it's been an incredible experience. The, the show Billions uh, brought me back to Showtime um, because I had previously worked on House of Lies uh, on Showtime with uh, Don Cheadle and Kristen Bell. Um, and this return actually brought, gave me the opportunity to return to live in New York City. Uh, most writers' rooms are in LA. So when any time somebody asks me the question, hey, I'm thinking about writing for film and TV, I'm like, yeah, you can write anywhere, but most of the hiring happens in Los Angeles. But right. so it's a dream to, to actually go back and live in the neighborhood that we went to college. And, uh, Wait, where'd you live? I, I, never, I never knew where you, where you had your spot. Yo, I was in the West Village, man. I was like right around the corner from IFC, um, okay. right near the Christopher Street stop on the one. So right you, were, near West you, were, you were balling. That money was all right. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, <laughs> I definitely could not have afforded that right after NYU. Um, uh-huh. And it was like a seven minute walk to my office on Morton Street. Like it was just, it was like the the old man going back to college and romanticizing about how great it was. I remember one time I was actually walking back home from work and I saw a sight and sound crew on the street. Right. Of course, their equipment is far better than the street. Wait, wait, uh, sight and sound is the uh, in, in undergraduate film at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. Um, sight and sound is like the first class where you pick up a camera and you make these five um, black and white silent films um, where you kind of learn the the, the units of filmmaking from parallel action to voiceover to composition, whatever. It's a pretty comprehensive intro to filmmaking class. And if you're anybody who's shot with the equipment, you can notice the difference between a sight and sound crew <laughs> and any other one right away. Right. And I had this instinct in my heart. I just wanted to go and grab all four of them and wrap them in a hug and be like, guys, it's going to be okay. Like <laughs> you will be able to pursue your dreams and, you know, good luck and all that. And I didn't realize how weird that would have been. Uh-huh. Um, but no, I mean, it did feel like um, sort of a, um, a full circle moment, getting to come back to the place where it all started for us um, and get to work on something for real with such, you know, talented cast, uh, you know, Damian Lewis, Paul Giamatti, Maggie Siff, um, really the entire cast and crew are just top notch. And I feel like I, have grown as a writer and a producer working with them. And um, yeah, I'm excited for people to check it out as far as things happening next. I also have this really, um, it, it might be a little too soon to announce, but I can say that like, I, I'm really excited about this project that me and my mentor, good friend, Matthew Carnahan have been uh, hired to adapt uh, a crime novel series by Joe Ide. Um, fans of his know what I'm talking about. Uh, the, the pivotal title book in the series is IQ, uh, which is actually the name of the main character, Isaiah Quintabe, who's essentially a reimagining of Sherlock Holmes as a 26-year-old black man living in East Long Beach. No, most notably, it's the stomping grounds of Snoop Dogg, who put it on the map and has decided to join us on this journey and has come on board as an executive producer. Uh, it's definitely going to be a pivotal um, for us in terms of us attracting other talent and getting it right. You know what I mean? Because um, you were talking about what kind of stories do we need to see more of? Like, I'm a big believer that, you know, 
you want to get someone's attention and swallow a, a difficult message, you hide it in a genre because right. there are certain things that we can latch onto that are guardrails for a thing that we know we like and we love. And, and it's subversive when you can lay in the thing that you're trying to say. Um, and I feel like in a lot of ways, that's how you reach people on subject matters that they wouldn't necessarily be paying attention to. It's for without a doubt, Shows like Star Trek and uh, The Twilight Zone reached middle America on the subject of racism and this, that, and the other in a way that maybe the news coverage wasn't breaking through to them. And, right. um, and I think what's so smart and subversive of it is it's like purely the simple act of shifting the point of view to this young Black man completely recontextualizes how you see a crime drama, right? And, you know, the thing that always boggles me when you talk about America right now, if you think about it, like, if you're a black man in America right now, you are most likely to be a victim of a crime and you're most likely to be accused of one. <laughs> and so I wonder, well, if that's the case, why are there so few crime dramas from a black male point of view, considering, like, you know, we're probably the group most impacted by you know, what works and what absolutely doesn't work. Um, and, you know, and I just think, you know, we see the story from his point of view. Every choice he makes is informed by the world he lives in and the way the world sees him. And I think that's important because sometimes it's not about the big issues, right? right. Sometimes it's about the small thing. Like when you're at Starbucks and somebody gives you a side eye and, you know, and maybe treats somebody that's standing next to you differently. And you're like, hmm. That is right you know like it could be any number of things but you know i do think that you know storytelling allows us to invite our point of view and you know like you know the audience inviting your point of view into their world and sometimes it changes and expands the way they see the world and right. i think that you know i'm incredibly grateful that you know we have the opportunity to do this i think it's important not only that we continue to push each other and encourage each other pete which is why i'm like so glad we're having this conversation but i also yeah. think it's important that we inspire and bring up uh younger writers um beneath us because you know we're going you just said you're 43 i'm i'm 42 like we're gonna be too old to be doing this shit soon so I don't know about you. I'm, I'm, I, I just stretched an hour ago, man. I'm good. I'm drinking water right now. Oh, man. You know, when I was when, back in the day when we met, when we were like nights, what, 17 years old? Yeah, I was 17 when I met you. Yeah. Um, I remember on like certain days I could I could hit my pillow and sleep till noon, you know, just because of the way my body was. Now, as a 40-something my body wakes up at 7 a.m. regardless of what time I went to bed. That's the are you still alive check. Your body wakes up. <laughs> Let's make sure he's alive. All right, you're alive. And then you just don't go back to sleep. Yo, let me, let me ask you before we pivot out. Um, I do want to make sure uh, those directors listening get to hear some gems from a writer. Um, what is it? What do you look for in a collaboration with a director? Um, and like, what, what are like the kind of best and worst things that you see from directors um, in episodic television in particular um, that you would want to make sure you kind of help these folks avoid and help these folks kind of hone in on? Right. 
Well, I think that while the role of a director on a TV series is a bit different than a film in so much that really the writer producer is kind of the person that's in charge of a TV set as versus a film set feature length film, the director is in charge. Um, I do think that you're looking for the same qualities in a, in, in, in a director in so much that you want somebody who comes from day one with a vision, you know, like, here's how I see this. Um, you know, someone is clear that they know the world of the show, they know the characters, um, and they're bringing something additive. Even if it's something that like tonally doesn't fit with the show. I mean, as a guest director, you can always pitch an idea and they say no, and then you're like, okay, well, but no executive producer's ever been upset at somebody coming with fresh original uh, ideas. Um, I do think though, it's also important because the role of a director is a little bit different on a TV show that, you know, the thing that every guest director wants is an invite back. And the surest way to do that is to make sure that you know what the show is and that you're making that. Because right. I have seen some directors come in here and be like, yo, I'm gonna fucking, I'm gonna do the, the episode that so-and-so didn't even know they want. And I've seen that happen. And then I've seen what the producers reacted when they're looking at the dailies and asking, do we have a tighter shot? Do we have this coverage? Why did we get this? You know, like, um, that's the quickest way to get uninvited to a show right. is you coming in there and showing how, how baller you are. Right. Um, and, you know, and I get that there's some directors who feel like their vision can't be compromised, but everything about a collaborative medium is a version of compromise. I think sure. the auteur theory has some merit, but it's mostly dead because um, I just think that it's impossible um, with that many hands on a product, uh, why you would want an environment where there's not some collaboration. So I think that like the, the directors that I've enjoyed most working with are, are the ones who have um, sort of invited me into their process a bit, you know, and, and so much as like, I want them to do the best fucking thing ever because it makes us all look good, right? Um, and I've just been encouraged by those directors who come in who recognize like, okay, well, this writer knows the show better than I do. Um, and they know the, the showrunner better than I do. Right. Um, so they can really help me make the show the way that their boss and everybody would be happy with. Right. And I think that those directors have usually been the most successful ones. And I've even had, and I won't, you know, I, I suppose, um, you know, one only needs to, to look at my IMDb credits and, you know, begin to suss out uh, <laughs> who I've worked with in the past. But, you know, there have been times when the topic of race or gender has been brought up um, on the in, low. In the episode or, or about the director? I worked, with, I worked with a female director once who came to me in confidence, and which is why I won't say her name, but really felt like, you know, like, am I imagining this? Or is this DP and his cameraman really giving me a, an unnecessarily tough time? And right. sometimes that happens for a guest director because you're not bringing your own crew. You're coming in, you know, fresh. And, um, and especially if you're a young director mm -hmm. and there's a lion producer who's worked forever who wants a shot at directing and hasn't gotten a chance. And then some film school kid comes in and wants to direct an episode. 
you might deal with a little bit of grumbling from people, you know, and, um, but I'm so grateful that that director felt comfortable enough to come to me because we had a conversation. I was think I was able to be like, yeah, I've actually seen a little bit of that too. And you're not making this up. And by the way, I have your back. And if anything fucking goes down where you're not getting the work you need, let me fucking know. And we'll square that up because, you know, as a writer on set, I'm also acting as on-set producer. And I think it's, you know, it's your responsibility, not just to make sure that you're getting what you want on camera, but to make sure that it's a safe and productive work environment. And so I know you're the same way. I I don't put up with bullshit. I have no tolerance for, for bad behavior and reckless behavior because people's, you know, safety is of utmost importance. Um, But I also think that all of us come to this with this sort of like, childlike wonder in the beginning of like wow wouldn't it be cool to make things right Right. and you know i want to create and foster the kind of environments that i've been fortunate enough to work in which is one that's like welcoming you know as encouraged and asked for my feedback and you know as i move forward that's certainly the type of manager i want to be in terms of bringing people up i want everybody on my team to feel heard even if they know, I mean, they're going to need to know I'm the boss, but still, like, right. it's mutual respect. You know, we're all craftsmen. We're all storytellers. It's a very, no reason why we can't have fun while doing it. Yeah. No, I agree. It's a, it's a very, uh, you know, for directors that are, that are listening, I think the job is much more than your ability to block a scene and, 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 and pick a vantage point from which to shoot it um, and, and dissect it as far as your coverage, because it is there's so many like traps. And I know for me, like you, you mentioned the getting the invite back, that's my goal, right? Mm-hmm. So like, like my goal is, is to get the invite back to return or God willing be too busy to accept the invite back, but <laughs> have like, you know. That's, they, a, that's a different problem, right? You, you, you go know? from like, you go from begging to get just any job Right. To a point where like suddenly you find yourself having to turn away work which seems absurd right. given that like so much of the journey is just like will anybody recognize that i know what i'm doing and that like right. you can trust me with this and um yeah but the collaboration is interesting because like um oh this is what i was going to say for directors that are looking to do tv or um tv in particular like there are there are a couple places where you can put your and I don't want to say stamp, but show your vision for the episode on the episode. And I'll say that's in your transitions. No yeah, how do you do that? Looking, well, because like, like no one's like you wrote the scene, right? And it has a beginning and an ending. And there's like the most important moment that we want to capture for sure. So like the storytelling um, crumbs are there. And right, the, the button on the end of the, the scene. Right? The what you're, yeah. But like, how do I, if I feel like, I will, I'll give you a perfect example um, of something I thought I did well, and if if I can say that. Um, (laughs) When I directed the Silicon Valley episode, Tethics, there was, um, Richard's character was um, basically getting a phone call from uh, a client who was upset about something he was doing online, right? And uh, Richard kind of goes from this power position to like getting a phone call and being told like, you need to chill, like what the fuck are you doing? So in that scene, I have, um, 
I have uh, Richard come up, answer the phone, and sit down as the other character stands up. Uh, right. Nice. And, and it's just it's the smallest little detail, but the power shift is communicated in that. And it's not written, you know, <laughs> more often than not, it's like it's almost masked as a decision for someone to like judge or be like, we don't want that. Um, or it's like, do you do a do you slide left to right off of the end of the scene and then pick up the start of the next scene coming right to left? And now you like that, though, that's the fabric I think that you can really make your own as a director. And then also like identifying the, the, the scenes that are unique to your episode. Right. So like if I've got like a montage in my episode that's on location and not in, in the set, the standing set, oh, I'm going to put some sauce on that shit because right. it's only going to be in this one. And I might, you know, I did it on a Blackish episode. I was like, I want to do a whip pan between these four moments. Right. And so, and of course, geographically, it didn't work. So it was all this kind of like, no, we'll do this. And then I will have to cheat that and then come off of that and go left to right. And now like the crew is seeing like, oh, he knows what he's doing, but he's also not imposing it on a conference room scene where it's people sitting and talking and we find out how Stevens and Leto feels about the latest drama that Dre is exploring uh, that we first introduced in the kitchen or in the living room at home. Um, Let me ask you, how do you, how do you make sure you make your days? And it may be explained to people like what that is, because that's also, I think a very pivotal thing that you're somewhat fairly or unfairly evaluated on as a director of television, especially. So you make your day by this. I could shoot every scene <laughs> two or three different ways, right? right. Um, and so, but fundamentally, I'm looking at what the most important moment is. And ultimately, I'm, I'm looking at the day's schedule. So when I say two or three different ways, like if scene seven were on Tuesday, which is seven pages versus Wednesday, which is four, I'm definitely going to shoot them differently because I know I have the, the the time resource available to me to dedicate toward it differently. Right. Uh, and so I'm always going to look at, um, and then I'm, I'm going to judge what importance does it have to the narrative of the episode? Right. Um, because if it's super important, um, I'll, like I've put myself behind schedule, quote unquote, on a certain scene because I know that it has narrative importance. And I also know that when I get to the later scenes in the day, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna do it so simply that this extra 90 minutes isn't even gonna matter because I'm gonna do that in 20. And I'm gonna do the other one in an hour instead of two hours. And- I think you pointed out something really important that I think, you know, is now I, I discovered the, the, the tone meeting, which happens during prep, during mm-hmm. an episode was something that really sort of uh, was sort of created uh, when Steven Boschko was doing Hill Street Blues. Okay. Because it was such a very specific show that I think that whatever directors were coming in really needed to be sort of like, let's talk about what this is supposed to look and feel like, because there's nothing on TV that's like this. And from there was born the tone meeting that every show does ever. Right. Um, one of those things. Some don't. Some huh? don't. I've had plenty that don't do it. Really? Or, or it's just an email and I'm like, wow, 
All right. Okay. I, I thought that was standard. Every show I've worked on has had that be a part of the prep process. And what I would say there is like, you know, you would hopefully have some sort of meeting with the showrunner where they're talking about these are the things that the scene is about and what, you know, so you as a director, you probably might've been able to gather just from reading the script and watching the show, what moments are important. But um, I think there's a lot to be called from those tone meetings and production meetings about what's important too. When oh, you're yeah. making that calculus of like, oh, you know, the, the, the show creator mentioned this moment a couple of times. I'm going to spend a little bit of extra time on this right. to make sure we get it right. Yeah. And, and the outright question, I, I'll literally ask, I'm kind of giving all my secrets away here, but <laughs> I, I, I literally will ask what makes, when you get this episode back from me, what makes you jump to the moon excited about what I've done? Mm. And then they outline that for me. And now I see what's super important. And then that becomes oftentimes something that I'm only privy to. So like me and maybe the editor's often in a tone meeting and the writer, right? But so when the DP might say, oh, well, I don't, you know, we don't normally do it like that. I was in a meeting where the showrunner looked me in my face and told me that this is super important. So I feel more comfortable perhaps getting a crew, raising the back of a crew for stuff they might think I don't need because normally they don't do it that way. Right. But I'm only doing it that way. And, and when I say, and maybe I'm taking 20 more minutes because I'm going to be super efficient. But like, I'm only doing that because I, I was, I'm aware that it fits the playground and the wants of the show and the episode. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a fun collaborative dance, man. You know, and I would say that so many of those same rules that apply to directors apply to writers in the room. I mean, when you're hired onto a show, you're essentially hired to help the creator, executive producer of the show make that show. Um, they certainly want you to bring your own voice and your own point of view. Um, but at the end of the day, your pitches and what you write has to be for the show that they want to make. Um, and, and the further away you veer from that, the more you're sort of endangering your job. Um, because, you know, if you want to be like, this is the way I write things. And yes, go create your own show <laughs> and you run it. Um, and that's obviously a lot easier said than done. I think <laughs> the vast majority of us find that learning how to communicate and to understand what people want and being able to take a note and yeah. not take it personally. Um, someone who can, you know, like, cause look, nobody wants to be told what you've come up with sucks. Right. And right. you have to be told no, hundred times over the course of a day as a creative. And so it's really about learning how to manage yourself where you're like, you can go and be mad about something for a minute. Definitely stay off your phone, stay off Twitter, (laughs) you know, while you're, while you're steaming. And then because I've found that so often I'll come back to a thing and be like, yeah, you know what? I think Pete was right. (laughs) I do need to change this. (laughs) I wasn't wasn't ready to hear it when you told me. But now that I've calmed down, I can be like, okay, yeah. But but you know what you you what you said first was like almost like my governing principle, which is it's not mine. Right. So if I'm if I'm doing my part in trying to digest and absorb what this thing is, then everything is done in root, and even my off off base, you know, miss inaccurate pitches are en route to me getting to a point where now I'm going to have overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. 
the majority of my pitches and ideas are going to fit. Right. You know what I mean? And, and so it's like, like I, you can't take it personal because, you know, it's like walking up to a chef and being like, yo, throw some, throw some uh, olive oil on it. And they're like, <laughs> what the are you talking about? I'm not, I'm not making that. You know what I mean? And so like, what about some take, Mrs. Dash? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To, to take that personal is just crazy. Um, <laughs> and the things that you learn, you know, I, I tip my hat to, to writers and showrunners and creators because I've been in, I've been in, I see the hierarchy when I do the meeting after the table read, right? Where now, now I watch the showrunner creator who has a particular uh, kind of position over me. I then watch them become me when the network comes back with their notes. You know what I mean? And like, and everybody's doing this dance of like, like considering, taking it in and trying to, you know, either adopt the note, adapt the note, or, you know, throw it away, but in a way that was never dismissive, you right. know? And like, right. and even in direction, like actors can often may not want to do what I'm, I'm talking about, but like, I'm kind of like trying to find a way also to give a note that's very critical without being a critique. Right. Right. Let me ask you when, you know, and maybe we, I know we, we need to wrap this up and maybe you end up having to chop this up into three parts. <laughs> One of the things I was, I was thinking that I find to be really interesting on set when I've seen different directors is communication with actors. So for example, there are many directors who got their rise in the camera department or, um, right. or maybe have a post-production background, but aren't necessarily theater nerds and have worked with actors a lot. So sometimes the language for how you imagine you want to shoot your thing and how to communicate that to an actor are two completely different things. Um, how do you block a scene? Um, and do you, how much room do you allow for actors to find the space rather than you dictating it? So I was told by Paris Barclay in my DGA orientation, and he used to be the president. Um, and uh, actually one of the last two episodes I did was awesome because he is the executive, uh, the directing producer on Station 19. Um, right, right. So kind of full circle. But he said, you are better off letting the actors know where you envision the scene going and where you see it ending up. Mm. That is enough of a roadmap for Mr. Lawrence Fishburne to fill in for, right. you know, for uh, Ms. Marsha Gay Harden to fill in. And so while I may and not while I may, while I will have, I've, I typically block out a scene. I have two options for the entirety of everyone's movement in the scene. Mm -hmm. And I do that. So, um, you know, like it might be, oh, maybe they stand here or maybe they stand there, or maybe they go and sit at this point. Um, or maybe, you know what I mean? Like I have an idea of that. Um, and I will, present the blocking with the start here in there. Mm -hmm. And then as they walk through it, I'm watching like, okay, are they going to, did they do what I, okay, cool. They did what I wanted. Okay. Okay. You know, I've heard from other directors that 90% of the time, if they just put the suggestion out there or something that informs kind of what they're thinking, 
almost 90% of the time the actors end up landing exactly where you right. were thinking they would anyway, because, you know, in a lot of these spaces, you're on a soundstage and there's just not that much room. Right. right? And you're like, well, if you're coming into the room, there's, you know what I mean? Like you only have a few lines, so you're not going right. to like walk all the way around before you say it. Um, yeah. There's certain things that can be suggested and implied. Right. I think that's a great approach because there are some actors who will come in who maybe have just read, the scene, you know, right. they're not off book and they're kind right. of like, oh, so where are we? And <laughs> that's when a director who's like, okay, here's what I was thinking helps. Right. But, but then there's some actors who are like, no, they memorize their lines with body movement. And yeah. so in a way they've already blocked out a completely different scene in their head. And I think you as a director end up having to be like, okay, well, is this smart? Can I adjust this performance? And, and typically, you know, it's like, I have, a, I have a thought of what you're, well, not a thought, you've expressed to me as the writer what you're looking for in the scene. And so at the end of the day, the scene is really about that most important moment in the scene. Mm-hmm. And right. I can guide, if, I, if there's a way for us to have a handshake on that moment where, mm-hmm. okay, I didn't envision you doing it like that, but I see why. And I can still get the moment in the way that communicates to the audience what that moment is supposed to communicate. I think it's great. The only other flip is when you do a show. I've done shows with like younger um, actors or sometimes I've done shows with like inexperienced actors. And there are times where I'm like, you're going you're gonna to stand here. You're going to stand there. Um, <laughs> you're going to move at that point because they don't necessarily have that um, muscle um, in the same way, like sometimes I'll, you know, do a scene and I'll ha- and I might tell a DP, okay, it's this, it's this, it's that, it's that, it's that, it's that, you know, because right. they might have anchored themselves very much in a specific language, and I might have a scene where I know I have the space to reimagine what the show does. Right. And, and you know, I've heard, um, I've heard director, I believe it was Doug Lyman who described directing as, a, as basically two elements when you break it down. And, you know, visually it's a close up of the face huh. and mystery. <laughs> and what? And mystery. Yeah. <laughs> it's the human expression, it's the face and it's the, the questions that they're pursuing or the thing that might happen. And, you know, I think as storytellers, that's certainly what we want. You know, we want the, you know, like we've seen every variation of the plot. The thing that we're all sitting captivatedly wanting to watch is a close-up of Kelly's face. Right. Right after she's heard the news about something right. pivotal, like what's her reaction to it? Now I'm like, that's what I want to see. <laughs> well, look, I, this has been super dope, man. Like, uh before you go, <laughs> is there anything, you know, in considering, um, you know, the importance of storytelling, um, obviously I'll always kind of bring it into that director conversation to make sure our listeners hear that. But, you know, it, what, if anything, do you want to make sure the audience has um, as they move toward their career as a storyteller or as they continue upon a career that's already begun as a storyteller? Like, what can you share with them as uh, uh, something to keep in mind or a guiding principle or something to that effect? Well, I certainly encourage all who are within 
the ability to hear this podcast wherever you're living, um, to know that, you know, if you feel so far removed from the idea of doing this that it never occurred to you that it's something you could do, you know, I think that you should take my example and you should take Pete Chapman's example as two men from different, you know, places in the world um, who found a way to do this and, and found a way to um, not just prosper, but really enjoy creative work that we're doing. And I would say that for me, um, it was as much about, you know, having some talent that was developed and encouraged as it was about me being persistent, constantly developing the craft, um, and then sheer luck, honestly. You know, um, I can't say that with any sort of pre-calculation, I've managed to do what I've done in the last 10 years. Um, but I do know that the work that I've, I did before opportunities presented themselves um, really made me be prepared for when the opportunities were presented. So my, right. what I say to any writer, the single hardest and easiest thing about being a writer is actually just sitting down and writing. Make a schedule for yourself. You know, if there's a project you want to create, you must be someone who can create that deadline for yourself if there isn't one. Um, and if you don't have the discipline to do it every day, then you might want to consider something else because it, this does require that, that level of passion and commitment. That's what's up, man. So y'all got it. Y'all heard it first directly from the man who has uh, gone from NYU student <laughs> uh, to, you know, EP on one of the best shows on television. So um, thank you, brother, man. Appreciate it. Appreciate you just, uh, opening up your time and space. Seriously, bro. Like this was, this yeah. was healing for me right now to have a conversation without you. Um, that doesn't begin. And well, it will certainly begin with anger, but, but ending with love and appreciation for one another and supporting one another. And I think, you know, that's a prevailing message I want to get out there about being black men in America. Is that like, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that are true, uh, that you've seen in the media, but there's a lot of things you haven't seen yet. And it's right. going to take like brothers like you and me um, continuing to support it and encourage one another to get those stories out there. So thank you so much for giving me a platform and giving me a little bit of time to air what's been on my mind. And, you know, um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to, to connect with your audience, man. This is such a such a treat. Thank you. All right. And ladies and gentlemen, that is Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman featuring Theo Travers. Thanks, y'all. Join us next week for episode two of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman as we welcome one of two special guests. I am not actually sure who it will be, but what I can tell you is that they will be the creator of a very popular cable show um, with legions of fans with uh, an episode that I've directed. Um, I'm also gonna follow suit moving forward. You know, it's our first step. We are creating a mailbag. So if you have any questions or suggestions or comments, or you wanna shoot me some uh, free stuff, 
go on over to let's shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. If you're unsure of how to spell the name, just check out the thumbnail on the podcast. Um, and in the meantime, y'all stay safe, stay focused and spread love. Peace.